Once again, we hear God's word from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the heaven, or rather made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The New Testament lesson from which our sermon comes is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And you can find that on page 1002 of your Pew Bibles. Once again, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, uh, this too is the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." The word of God so far, let us pray that God will bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, help us to concentrate on your word this morning. Help us to seize upon it. 
Help us to hear the law convicting us of our sin, our weakness, and also help us to hear with equal power the gospel of Jesus Christ, convicting us of eternal life in Christ alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ and Friends, you must always keep in mind that the church to whom the author of Hebrews writes is struggling with trials and temptations and is in danger of becoming just like Israel who wandered in the desert. The church could easily lose their faith and fail to reach the final place of rest, that is heaven. And this context helps you to understand the appeal the author makes to the church to hold fast to their confession of Jesus Christ. And of course, this appeal appeal is made to you as well. Notice the author does not tell you to work harder, but tells you to believe. It is not the faithfulness of the people that achieves heaven, but the faithfulness of Jesus. Therefore, the striving to which the author speaks refers to a solid belief in Jesus, which results in the final rest of heaven. So in the, fir- in the sermon, first, it is important to understand the history of redemption in which people fail to enter God's rest, but Jesus succeeded. Second, because of Jesus' faithfulness, you may strive to enter God's final place of rest in heaven, as the author says in verse 11. So the subject very clearly of this section is rest. And there are two types of rest to which the author speaks. First, there is God's rest. That is the rest into which God entered himself after he created the world. And this rest is spoken to in verses 4 and 10 of the passage. Second, there is the rest of salvation for God's people. This rest begins in this life through faith in Christ and continues in the next life in heaven. The author of this section, like he did in the previous section, warns the church that they could fail to enter the final rest of heaven if they fail to believe and become disobedient like the Israelites did. But he argues that the hope of remaining faithful is not based on their efforts. Rather, it is based on Christ's efforts. After all, Jesus, according to verse 14, passed through the heavens. That is, he made it to the final place of rest in God's presence because he was a faithful high priest, a faithful son. This means that you, who are united to Christ through faith, will also make it to the final place of rest, heaven, your final home, the end of the journey in this life. The history of the place of rest, which is signified by the promised land, helps you to understand that no man could achieve rest in this life or in the next. So look at several examples here of how no man, no woman, no person could achieve the place of rest. Only Jesus could do that. And the place of rest is signified by the promised land. So we'll see that Adam failed, Israel failed, but Jesus succeeded in achieving final rest. So we begin with Adam. Notice that the first reference in the Bible to the promised land is found in Genesis chapter 2. According to this chapter, God planted a garden in Eden and he placed Adam in it. So Edom is this holy place, right? Uh, A holy temple, uh, the promised land. 
And here God promises to dwell with man forever and ever under certain conditions. So God gives Adam the law of the covenant of works in which Adam has to obey God. If Adam were to remain faithful to God, then he would be confirmed in his original righteousness and Eden would actually be transformed into the permanent promised land, actually covering the face of the earth. The whole planet would become this holy land. The original creation then was to be the final place of rest coinciding with God's own rest from his work of creation. That's very important to understand. The project of redemption is different from the original plan that the whole earth would be filled with faithful children, faithful people, that that would be heaven. But, as you know, Adam was not faithful to God. He disobeyed God's law by eating of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. So he was excommunicated from Eden and he and Eve received the death sentence. Nevertheless, God in his infinite mercy promised that the Messiah would save him and her and their family by his shed blood. This promise of the gospel not only encompassed the comfort of salvation in this life, but it encompassed the comfort of eternal salvation and rest in heaven, the final promised land. The gospel of Jesus Christ then promised at the beginning of time was linked to the reality of a final place of rest for God's people. That's very important to understand. Many times people make salvation something very abstract. It's just some sort of uh, abstract comfort that you can grab in this life. But God created the world uh, to be a final resting place for people. It's people's fault that that's not achieved right away. Salvation is linked with a real earthly existence. And you see that in the final heaven and earth, right? It's not the final heavens. It's the final heaven and earth. And so as the Old Testament unfolds, you see this promise of salvation linked to the land, the promised land of Canaan more and more. So first of all, Adam failed. Adam couldn't do it. He couldn't achieve or succeed in securing that final rest. But Israel also failed. The nation of Israel became God's son, right? His servant through election. God chose Israel to be his people, a people who would love him and serve him, as should be done to the king, right? Therefore, he brought them back, or rather bought them back from Pharaoh. He cleansed them from their sin in the Red Sea and eventually brought them into Canaan, the promised land. On Israel's behalf, God would defeat Israel's enemies in the land and then restore Canaan, right, to the original um, land as it was in Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey, a wonderful, perfect land for the people. And all Israel had to do was obey God's law like Adam had to obey God's law. But Israel, like Adam, was disobedient. Israel was an unfaithful son. Israel broke God's law. Therefore, like Adam, Israel was excommunicated from the land and received the death sentence, as God told them, and they were called not his people. Nevertheless, God promised them the gospel as he had promised Adam the gospel. He promised that another son, another servant, would be born who would be faithful to God, finally. Through his faithfulness, 
that's the Messiah's faithfulness to the law, he would save Israel from their sin and lead them into the ultimate place of rest, the promised land of heaven. Therefore, it's very clear that Adam failed, Israel failed, but Jesus succeeds in securing, achieving and securing the promised land of heaven. After all, Jesus is true Adam, he is true Israel. He was subjected to the same trials and temptations as Adam and Israel, but remained faithful to his father. Not only did he obey God's law perfectly, but he did so in your behalf and even fell under the curse of God at the cross in your behalf. This proves that Jesus did not have to save himself as if he were sinful, attempting to overcome sin, right? No, he was perfect already and obedient to the very end. So Jesus was serving his people as a great high priest who was sinless. And this is plain according to Hebrews 4.14, but also the author says in chapter 3, verse 2, that Jesus was faithful to God. He obeyed him and suffered his wrath in your place. His people, including Adam, Eve, their children, Israel, and you, incurred God's wrath because of Adam's sin. Jesus took away God's wrath from you by taking it upon himself in order to save you. But further, Jesus, God's true Son, passed through the heavens, which is to say he went into heaven, the final place of rest. Therefore, because of Jesus' faithfulness, you may strive to enter God's final rest in heaven, as the author says in verse 11. That is, you are to hold fast your confession in Jesus, to maintain faith in Christ, looking forward to the final rest of heaven. It isn't to maintain faith just for a day or so, it is to maintain faith to the very end. And the good news in all of this is that there remains a Sabbath rest for you. But there is something to fear, according to verses 1 and following. That is, that you should become like Israel, wandering in the desert, not believing in God's promise of the gospel and the place of rest attached to it. According to verse 3, you who have believed enter the rest of salvation now, which will result in entering the final place of heaven. But God was angry with those in Israel who refused to believe, and they did not make it into God's final place of rest. And these are God's people. These are the people whom God redeemed. He brought them through the desert. He took care of them. His people. But they did not make it into the final place of rest. The author in this passage is warning you not to be like that wicked generation which was characterized by unbelief. You too will not make it into the final land of heaven unless you, your faith and trust remains in Jesus alone. Again, the author is not emphasizing here, stop sinning and be really good. He's emphasizing faith. True faith in Jesus. And the dominant note in this passage is the good news that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's still a today, still a uh, present moment of faith. So notice how the author brings in the historical reality of the promised land to demonstrate the point of the good news uh, that there's still this present opportunity of faith. In verse 8 he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. This is a reference, of course, to a period after the evil generation of Israelites who did not enter the promised land. It is a reference to the generation that did make it into the land under the leadership of Moses. So you recall, from last week, we talked about that evil generation that made it right to the promised land but said, no, we don't want to go in. We want to do things our own way. That generation lost it. They did not make it into the the final promised land, or the promised land of Canaan. But the next generation made it in, uh, that is the kids made it in, under the leadership of Joshua. So we hear this in Joshua chapter 21. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. The Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. So Joshua had achieved rest. He had brought that generation into the promised land. But the author of Hebrews is saying that even though Joshua and that generation of Israelites saw the fulfillment of the promised land, it was not the final promise. The land was only a symbol or a type of heaven, the final place of rest. The upshot of this is that there is still a today that is an opportunity to enter the true and final land of heaven. Adam lost the original land. Israel's possession of it was only provisional. But because of Christ's achievement of entering the land and securing it, you will enter it too. Striving to enter rest means resting now from your works and relying on Christ, following God's pattern of work and rest in the creation week. Notice that the author says two times in this passage, in verses 2 and 6, that Israel had the good news, that is the gospel, preached to them, but they failed to believe it. This failure was manifested in their disobedience. They refused to go into the promised land, which signified heaven. It was like they were saying, no thanks, God. We don't want heaven where we have to live according to your terms. We really like the idea of heaven, We like the idea of rest. We like the idea of eternity, but not on your terms. We like it on our terms. And of course, this is a lack of faith. It is really to deny Christ coming up with your own conditions. And what you learn from this is that you always want to make the issue in the Christian life personal obedience or personal actions according to your own understanding. So if you are really good, if you do good works, then you are worthy to enter heaven. No, that is just self-righteousness that fails to achieve heaven. Rather, the issue is faith in Christ. Those who have been baptized have been marked out as belonging to God and must stay true to Him in faith. It is Christ who makes the difference. It is who Christ is and what He has done fulfilling the law and dying in your place, which is the object of your faith. And true faith in Christ, a hearty faith in Him, will organize your life on this earth according to God's standards, not your own. Even if standards that you think are right and good. The challenge you have in this life is to maintain your faith and trust in Christ throughout. Well, that means that you'll understand that your ordinary callings in vocations, 
that you have and the trials you face as a Christian, carrying out these callings will be uh, framed by faith in Christ as you wait for the final day of heaven. So understanding your work in this world as a way to respect the pattern of creation week to which the author speaks in this passage. says, you work six days and rest on the seventh like God worked six days and rested on the seventh. But now that Christ was raised on the first day of the week, Sunday, the order reverses to signify the last days have begun. Now you rest and worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, and you work the rest of the six days of the week. And in this, you anticipate the final rest of heaven that has no end. Therefore, resting from your works, as the author says in verse 10, means that you accept your calling to work in this life. So he's talking about ordinary callings, to be moms and dads, to be workers in different realms, to be children who obey their parents, to do all the things that we do ordinarily in this life. But of course, all of these things include the trials and tribulations associated with being a Christian. And of course, you don't complain and thwart God as Israel did in the desert. Israel failed to achieve final rest because they did not rest from their works. That is, they refused to accept their particular calling to travel through the desert. I mean, who would want that vocation for the time? But God said, no, that is your vocation. I have redeemed you from Egypt. You will eventually make it into the promised land, but the time in between is wandering in the desert. It wasn't supposed to be wandering. It was supposed to be traveling through the desert. Nobody wants to do that because it's very hard to live in the desert. But that was God's calling for them. That was their vocation. Likewise, the church during the time of the letter to Hebrews is struggling with the same thing. They are tired of experiencing trials. And they think about ditching the faith, being disobedient, and saying that they will achieve heaven on their own terms, not God's terms. Their great error was losing sight of the fact that there is a God-ordained pattern to this world. Six days of labor, then rest, which translates into accepting the present circumstances of suffering in these days with the full expectation that they will end someday and they will enter into God's final rest. Let's think about this a little more carefully. Little Johnny learns that he can't eat Snickers bars for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He wants to, but his parents prohibit him from eating food like that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They say, Johnny, you may indulge yourself once a week, say, eating your Snickers bars, but if you do that all the time, you're going to get really sick. Likewise, Johnny, Johnny must learn to clean his room six days a week, and then on Sunday he can take a break to worship God. In each case, the hard things of life are tolerable because there is a pattern of work and rest, of labor and recreation. Children that learn this at a very young age go on to succeed. Children that do not learn this do not go on to succeed. And we're all like children, aren't we? Why do I have to give things up in life? Why do I have to say no to something that I would like every day? 
Why do I have to work really hard all the time and then take a day off, taking the day off is to worship God? I don't like that, we say to God. I don't like that I have to sacrifice things in life. Which is really to say what Israel was saying in the desert, right? God, why are you making us go through the desert right now? God, why can't we have water right now? Why do we have to eat this crummy manna all the time and quail? We're sick of that. We don't like that. And you can see why the author of Hebrews is comparing his generation and your generation, really, to the generation of the Israelites. We want to take biblical history a lot of times and say, it's sort of this thing we can encase in a vacuum and study from back here, and it really doesn't have relevance to us. But God is saying, no, it does. It is your life. Israel's life is your life. And kids at a young age say, Mom, why can't I have candy all the time? Why do I have to clean my room? And smart parents understand, you know what, I'm just like that kid. I want to have what I want to have right now. And I don't want to have to do all the hard work and the hard stuff of life. But God says, yes, you do. You're a creature in the fallen world, and work is by the sweat of your brow. But one day you will rest in heaven, don't you see? It's like God is saying, don't you understand you live in a fallen world and you're fallen? Of course you're going to have to give stuff up and have a hard life. But more so if you're a Christian. Your calling is to suffer and that calling is suffering that is redemptive. But in the end, the Word of God reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's interesting how people love to memorize verse 12 here. It says in the Word of God, wonderful how it uh, divides our soul and spirit, our joints and marrow, but it's the Word of God judging us, isn't it? Isn't the Word of God wonderful and so sweet? Yes, it is, but it also judges. It's judging here. It judges you for your sin. But there is hope in this function of judgment. As you are laid bare before God, your sin and disobedience is exposed. You're able to flee to Christ, your faithful high priest, and trust in Him when you're struggling, not in yourself, or your own conceptions of what a good life is. You must give account to God on the final day. That means that your trust and hope must be in Christ now. Your justification in Christ now and on the final day. The author is saying, enter that rest. Stop working to achieve your own idea of rest. In this life, it isn't stopping to work or the ability not to give up stuff. It's resting in Christ now and forevermore. In conclusion, all of this involves a perspective that there is an end, a stopping point. Adam, through humanity, and the creation into despair and death, but Jesus has reversed his sin and has reversed the curse, securing heaven for you. For the time being, you must carry out God's call in your respective callings, which involve suffering, but this too will end and you will rest. Notice what the author says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Their 
labors and deeds refer to the manifestation of true faith in Christ under the pressure of trials and temptations. It's not good works. Therefore, when you stand before God on the final day and He says, Well done, my good and faithful son. Well done, my good and faithful son or daughter. You will still confess that it was and is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that you praise, not yourself. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.